Mickey scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. Now, from Lexington, Kentucky, here's Bruno DiGiulio. Well, to talk about Churchill Belmont with two of my favorite handicappers, Roger Satina and Michael Goodrich. Pete Renato was not able to make it today. He's down with a cold, uh, non-COVID related. So he's down and out, but I got two great guys on board with me. Mike, Roger, welcome. Thank you, Bruno. Hello, Bruno. All right, guys. Now, Michael, you just got out of hockey practice. Yeah, not only are you, um, you know, you're a forward in the handicapping world, but uh, you also are a hockey coach. Tell us a little bit about that. So I've uh, I've been coaching and working with young, you know, hockey players for probably almost 30 years now. And uh, I started working out in this small little rink in my old town in Secaucus, New Jersey. And the guy who ran the rink was the high school coach there. And the next thing I know, I'm working with his high school team. He got me suckered in. And uh, you fast forward, you know, I've been a high school coach for almost 25 years. And now I work with my son and my daughter who play AAA hockey. And uh, I'm an assistant coach, and I enjoy that part of it even more. <laughs> the head coach part sucks. So, yeah, uh, so well, that's how I have got you, it. Uh, have, you developed any, um, um, have you developed any uh, hockey uh, NHL players? No, no NHL players. We've had a few Division One guys come through us at St. Peter's. Uh, I was at St. Peter's Prep right after Kyle Palmieri, who's in the NHL. Um, but, yeah, I, I haven't had that luck to have any of those guys come through me. And I don't know if you actually develop them. I think they kind of – they're already there, and the coach just facilitates them, if that makes sense. Okay. All right. Now, Roger, um, you also work outside of racing. And uh, as Michael handles – kids and hockey and and races and horse and handicapping how do you balance your handicapping um and your work well it's really really not that easy i'm basically a weekend warrior because during the week i just don't have time for it uh i'm sure michael has the same problem so that's really what i do it's really just a weekend thing and during the week i i look forward to the weekend and handicap beforehand now, I've got one little issue here that, Michael, can you hear Roger? Yes, I can. Okay, Roger can't hear Michael. So, we're going to make this, we're going to make this easy. Um, I'm going to go to Roger first real quick, and we're going to talk about, we've got Churchill and Belmont kicking off tomorrow for the, for the month of September. Now, Roger, which, are you going to? Which tracks are you going to uh, look at, at in this September before we get into the, the big October meet leading up to the Breeders' Cup? What tracks are you going to focus on? I'm mostly usually uh, – September is usually Churchill for me all the time. That, that's what I usually, I usually focus on. I've always had good success there. I know you're there clocking too, so that doesn't hurt. I've had great success at Churchill. I, I, I agree with you. There's a lot of people that don't. 
there's a lot of people that have not had success. Let me go to Michael. Michael, what's your feeling or uh, do you have any success stories about Churchill? And before I go to Roger and ask him about what is his favorite angles at Churchill Downs, what are yours? You know, so I follow Churchill this meet, but I, I, I can't say I play it as much because they're not in a lot of the tournaments. Um, so I'll spot play, but I follow Churchill for Keeneland because Keeneland is the meet that I, I look forward to after Churchill. So I start following them for the Keeneland meet. And I feel like the ones that are running well over there sometimes set up well for Keeneland. And Roger, as Michael just mentioned, he spot plays and basically scouts Churchill for the Keeneland meet. Do you use the reverse where you really uh, do spot plays at Churchill, but at the same time you're looking at um, making uh, also some notes for Keeneland? So I do, I do enjoy Keeneland a lot also. You know, what it, you know what it is to me is like a lot of trainers point towards the fall meets in Kentucky, Churchill, Keeneland. And I, I kind of focus on that and, and just waiting, you know. Uh, a couple come to mind like uh, a lot of the Kentucky guys just they point for Churchill and Keeneland. And uh, I can't remember who I'm thinking of now. I had one specific. But I, I just, I just really enjoy Churchill. I enjoy the one-turn mile races, especially. Anything uh, specific about the one-turn mile race that attracts I, I, you? I, I just think you can win from anywhere, and that's what I like. I hate these tracks that you got to be the first out and first home. Uh, outside posts in the in the one-mile races, and you can basically win from anywhere, right? I like betting horses turning back into the one top into the one mile and I really don't like the horses stretching out from six to a mile because by the time they hit the turn like if they've never done it before they're usually spent and Michael as Roger is mentioning um, we have some different types of races at Churchill that we don't get at other tracks like the one turn mile we get that at Gulfstream too we get it at Laurel we get it at um, um, let's see what else what other track do we get that Belmont but um Belmont, you like Belmont, don't you, Mike? So I grew up in Long Island, uh, grew up Belmont Aqueduct in the winter, and, and I do like Belmont. I've had some success there. I love the big stretch. You know, he's also got that one-turn mile that I think is a unique race. He's right. You, you get a lot of bombs in those races. Horses can win from anywhere. Uh, it's interesting he likes those cutbacks because I agree with that. You know, the horses that are cutting back in distance to the mile, it kind of hits them right between the eyes. I always used to call the, the one-turn mile the bastard distance because you could be a sprinter and be able to stretch out, and you could be a router and be able to handle that on the cutback. It's a really interesting race race that you can you can make cases for a lot of different types of horses. Now – being a Belmont fan and, you know, in your backyard, Michael, uh, how do you handle, for example, now the Saratoga meet horses coming over to Churchill? You know, the first couple of weeks are always interesting to me at Belmont because I feel, you know, I, I have to watch a little bit like Saratoga. The first couple of weeks are tough. For me, the first couple of weeks at Belmont are tough. 
I feel like it's a different type of racing again. Like it's almost, you know, Belmont's got a different track. It's got a, a you know, the, the turns are sweeping. Some horses love it. And, and I think, you know, the Saratoga horses that ship down, you know, they, they don't always fit there for whatever reason. Uh, the turf is, I think, different. I think when it comes to the turf racing at Belmont, I think the Saratoga turf chippers do fit and they do run well. But I think the dirt's a different type of track. It's Some horses like that sandy and some don't. And Roger, Michael brings up the nuances of Belmont and the different types of horses that win at Saratoga not necessarily carry their form over to Belmont. Now, I can tell you, Speed dominated at Saratoga. You could not come from the back of the pack. It was very few and far between. And and coming to Churchill as well, those horses that are speed horses at Saratoga, I think are going to find themselves to be in a tougher spot at both tracks, both Belmont and Churchill. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm hoping that's the case because you know people love they see horse ran at Saratoga right away they got to bat him right and that's definitely not me with all. good form with good form with good form exactly and when you're looking at now let's talk about good form real quick Roger what is your um, definition of a horse in good form uh, horses in good form are horses that run consistently. Right. And, and that they and that they're always like in the thick of it. Right. Uh, if they step up in class, maybe they don't run as good. But if they're where they need to be, I, I like to see them running once a month, like every four to five weeks. I, I hate horses that are always laid up. To me, that's a horse in good form is one that can consistently get on the racetrack. Michael, same question to you. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty great answer. You know, horses that can kind of come back after three or four weeks and race again and kind of put up similar types of, of figures. You know, I also think, you know, horses that are on the pace more, you know, I, sometimes you get these plotters that need a race set up to run their number. But I think sometimes you get horses that are always on the pace and when they're in good form, you know, they, they give you a chance to win because they're on pace and they're in good form and they're not in trouble. You know, I think the plotters, you know, I think those are the ones that are they're tough to catch because they need a lot of race set up. Now, this year, in this meet coming up in September and the November meet uh, at Churchill, Roger, there's no turf racing. That's going to affect a lot of the fields. They're going to run a lot of eight, eight race cards on the weekdays. Is the, how does that affect your handicapping? No turf racing at Churchill. Well, I really like the turf racing, so it's a little bit of a downer. But uh, if, if anything, I really like Oakland a lot, too, and that's all dirt. So I think, I think I'll be all right. Yeah, I'm interested to see some of the uh, it's turf racing at Keelan is going to be spectacular uh, yeah, because definitely. we are going to have you're going to have a lot of full fields and a lot of guys trying to get in. Um, Michael Belmont, Belmont's going to have uh, a lot of uh, probably even Kentucky shippers coming in 
for their turf racing. I was disappointed with the first couple of cards at Belmont, but I got a feeling the weekend card is going to be huge. Yeah, Belmont usually gets it going. You know, I, I usually October is usually a great month of racing at Belmont. You get good fall weather, and you have horses pointing for that. You know, that month to run. A lot of them are setting up for the you know right before the Breeders' Cup to get a run in some of the better horses. So you know, the Belmont fall meet's always a nice meet. It kind of gets you. It's good weather. I feel like you have better weather than Saratoga at times because you get so much rain up there. Yeah. The, the fall meet, you get good turf at, at Belmont. It's it's historically been a really good betting meet, I think. Oh, one one thing that I always follow up, and, and I'm kind of been blessed to have the ability to do this. I have all the notes on all these babies that were training at Saratoga. They may not have run well. They may not have, um, uh, they may not have started yet. Um, I remember... Um, a few years ago, uh, Mo Heyman was training before he ever started at Saratoga. And I knew this gray for McLaughlin was training lights out, showed up at Belmont. I was at the Keeneland sale. Um, and, uh, I had to stop and, and, and go watch him run. I think I made a little bet with the uh, bet on him there at the Keeneland sale. He ended up paying $8. Uh, it's almost like some people forget about the horses that didn't start at Saratoga, but trained at Saratoga, and they were ready to run at Belmont. Funny side broke his maiden first week of Belmont uh, after training. I think I believe he trained at Saratoga and then ended up winning at Belmont. And there's probably a lot of uh, historical data that, that can back up that point that you want to pay attention to the good working horses that were at Saratoga that people forget about. And I'll go to Roger on this one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sure, especially with Churchill not being open all summer. So, you know, a lot of these guys are right. They took them up there and maybe they never ran them. I don't know. How would you compare the main track at Saratoga to Churchill? It's very different, right? Yes. And um, I think way too speed oriented, which Churchill can't be speed oriented, too. But. It just, I, I think that it's a different, you know, and also let me just say this. The jockey colony is different and I don't mean different by the by the names, but I think it's different in the way it handles itself. Um, I think Luis Saez went in there this past summer and busted up that jockey colony where it wasn't really dominated by Jose and Irad. In fact, Jose and Irad struggled the first part of the meet. And then picked it up in the middle of the meet when their when their guys started firing and winning a lot of races. So I think the jockey colony is a lot different with a lot more um, a lot more leadway for for certain guys to really do well that you otherwise wouldn't hear. A guy like Miguel Mena, who would ride for Al Stahl and and rides and he loves to ride the pine. And that's a guy that can win a maiden race or can win when the rail is when the inside is good over at Churchill. And, and, and the Churchill track can play that way because of the moisture in the track. Sometimes the early part of the card is dominated by speed. But as you get on to the day and it gets a little cooler or the sun starts to go down, you don't get that track, you know, that that plays to, to speed as, as it does early. 
You just have to stay on top of it. And now having all eight races or nine races or ten races being run on the main track, guys, we may get a different view of it other than, um, you know, having four on the dirt and four on the turf. So as far as Belmont is concerned, Michael hit it right on the head. It is a different kind of track. Um, how do you approach Belmont, especially the first couple of days, Michael? You know, I watch, I, I try to watch the races a lot those first few days. And, and I also, you know, look at the Saratoga meet and look at the guys who maybe didn't fire. Because, I'm, you know, good, good trainers that don't do well eventually do well. What, are you dropping pucks over there? Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you dropping pucks? What are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So, well, I thought for a moment you were cleaning your equipment. It sounded like it. No, I don't, I don't know what that was. No, so yeah. what I was going to say was I, I, I feel like certain trainers, you know, have they struggle at the Saratoga meet, but it sets them up to have good meet at Belmont with their conditions. And, yes. and you know, the Saratoga yeah. meet's a tough meet, you know, and, and these guys might run fourth and fifth at Saratoga and their horses are getting ready for Belmont. Then they ship them down and they run better. But I, I do think that some horses like that sandy surface more than others. Some horses just don't run well, and then aqueduct is what they go to next. Well, well interesting point about that. And, and Roger actually can hear you now, which is great. Roger, and I think Michael makes a good point, but also when you go from the turf at Saratoga and the only one-turn race is a five-and-a-half sprint, now all these horses that were running two turns at Saratoga, they didn't really handle it. Now I get to go one turn on the turf at Belmont, and that seems to be a huge difference. Yeah, that is a huge difference, right? And also you talk about the five, and, and now you're going from five and a half on the grass to six or seven. That's a tremendous difference. Totally. Right. Night and day. Night and day. Yeah, now you got horses that at five and a half just never got there. And now you got horses that can, you know, that can close into the pace, or you've got pace horses that now can go a little bit slower instead of being gunned out of there at five and a half and being able to, to stretch out the six, six and a half, seven on the turf. So it's it's really it's it's a really a, it's a beautiful mixture of handicapping puzzle. Um, Roger, now going back to, to Churchill, the difference between night racing and day racing. Um, it's really interesting to me how I, I often at night racing, I start looking at horses that can come off the pace where there's much more mo moisture in the track. The, the, the track can play a little heavier and it plays to the outside. I made my biggest score ever of 47,000 um, on, on a night racing when I identified that the track was going to be playing the two, three wide and not the speed that it was during the day. Do you keep track of, of those uh, of, of where the profile of the winners are coming from at Churchill from day to night? Yeah, I do. I basically like I take notes on every card, basically, even if I'm not playing, I'll I'll watch the replays and, and, and save it on formulator just to get an idea what's going on. But I, on, on cooler nights, you definitely could see it that the track definitely is is uh, geared the other way without a doubt. Water is the equalizer. Moisture is the equalizer on the track. Same thing for Belmont, Mike. You get track, uh, a Belmont track that's loose and sandy, hence the name Big Sandy. 
speed dominates, all of a sudden you get a little bit of water on the track from a shower or, you know, you get a, a, a later card and it's a totally different track. And do you think they manipulate the tracks too throughout the day by watering it and later in the day? Do you think that's an intentional thing, Bruno? Um, I wouldn't call it intentional. I think what they try to do is they try to keep water in it so it doesn't get too loose and deep and, and basically becomes a merry-go-round. I think when you see merry-go-round races, that track is actually loose. And see, we were talking, I think, I think Pete and I were talking last week, and I made a mention that the lingo, the way we say things, sometimes doesn't agree with the way that a track superintendent speaks. For example, a track superintendent will say, track is slow when it doesn't have water in it, it's slow, it's deep. Well, handicappers automatically think speed is going to be dying because it's deep. What they don't understand is like you running on that dry part of the sand on the beach. Nobody can get a hold of it. Nobody. So, yeah, you get tired, but so does the guy behind you chasing you because he can't get traction either. So what happens? Speed goes wire to wire. The nimble horses, the nimble feet uh, do better on, on, on a deeper track that's dying, you know, that, that, that makes you, you know, get tired. Speed just keeps going. However, when you have a track that's got traction to it, now all of a sudden speed gets traction. Well, so does the closers when they got to make their run. And, and I'll tell you guys, turf works a similar way, except when the turf is wet and it gives speed dominates because the closers can't get a hold of it and finish. Well, on the other end of it, you'll find when Keelan, for example, is very firm or Belmont is very firm. You get horses flying from the back of the pack because they get traction. That's the bottom line traction. There's water affecting again, moisture affecting a track playing to different styles. Uh, people say, well, European horses run on that stuff all the time. True, correct. But if you watch a lot of European, race, European races on turf that is soft, certain horses are able to handle it. And they actually, most of them are horses that are close up to the pace. And they can dominate the pace and they kick on. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting where how water can really dictate what a track will play like. And if, Michael, you mentioned about the manipulation of putting a lot of water in it. You see that at Saratoga when they're coming out onto the track and you see that the outside part of the, the, the main track, it's got a lot of water and it's almost like it's sealed. And that, because they're trying to keep water into that track and keep it to where it stays consistent. But let's say you have a situation where they water it and the weather is not going to evaporate that water out of the system. Now you got more of a bogged down track. You almost got an off track. It's, you know, because it's not evaporating fast enough. Where on other days it evaporates. I mean, I've seen tracks where they put water over it and five minutes later it's gone. So Gulfstream for one. So Roger, how do you handle those conditions? How do you handle the differences where you, you say, hey, I know this track was like this. Now it's like this. It's, it's kind of it's hard in the middle of a card to, to really realize what may or may not be going on. You know, especially when you're doing simulcasting and you're not there. I mean, if you're there, you could actually see it better. 
right? So it's difficult. I try not to get bogged down in biases personally. Try to just look to bet the right horse and, and not get crazy about what I think may or may not be going on. Yeah, you're right. I, 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 I side to agree with you. Michael, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. But, you know, Roger made an interesting point. When you're there, you can see it. And I do think, you know, for me, if I'm at Keeneland or I'm at Belmont, throughout the day, you're able to adjust your style a little bit with what your eyes are telling you on the track. You know, it's almost like you're, you know, all right, the dead closes aren't working or the speed isn't holding up. You know, I'm able to kind of adjust my handicapping to the scenarios that are happening that day. You know, so I do think being there is, is a good component. I like being there when you have the time to spend where when you're at home, you know, you don't see them warm up. You don't see the whole thing. Like, like when you're there and you're experiencing what's going on throughout the races. Let me bring let's, let's, this is an interesting conversation because um, I want to bring up a little bit of an uh, um, of an experience I had, and it was at Delmar, and it must have been around two thousand three, two thousand four, because Steve Wood was still the superintendent, and I had gotten to the point that I knew that track so well that when and it was still dirt at that time, I could watch five works at six o'clock in the morning. And I could tell you if that track was different, just the way they held, they held their head, just the way they moved. Um, and what I found interesting was, uh, there was one morning that everything was bobbling, was taking funny steps as in like the track was breaking out from underneath them. So on the break before the nine o'clock break, Steve Wood calls me. And says, what do you think of the track? I said, it's loose and it's breaking out from underneath them. And he said, watch this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change things up a little bit. And you tell me what happens after the break. Sure enough, he comes out with the water trucks. Uh, he arrows the track. Um, after the break, 59 and 2, 59 and 1, 11 and 2, 12 and 2. So he, you know, and he calls me and goes, what do you think? I said, you sped the track up by at least five lengths. Now, what he was probably reacting to at Delmar was that the tide had, had, had been out, so the track was dry. So he didn't put water on it because he probably thought with the moisture from the morning, I don't need to. Well, then later, when he added the water, uh, the track just sped up to be what it was supposed to be. I've seen the reverse where you have early on in the track is lightning fast. Two hours later, it's slower. At Saratoga, there's, there's, they tear that track up every day. They tear that track up at 11 o'clock in the morning for the races. All right, who fell? <laughs> Did somebody check Michael? Did somebody put you in the board on that one, Mike? Maybe. What's it, can you, it's not me. I know. I, it's weird. It sounds like it's really weird. But uh, but being you being the hockey guy, we got to blame you, right? No somebody problem. Somebody crush. Somebody I'll crush. Take, check Mike. You know? I'll take the shots. But yeah, I, I'm not doing anything. That's so weird. I don't hear any noise either. Yeah, it, it's uh, and and I've got earpods on, so uh, so do I. So. Yeah, and that's not Joe. Joe's sleeping down there. I will tell you while we were talking, Joe brought in a praymantis. 
that he found outside. You know what a praying mantis is, right? This one yeah. was about about a half a foot long. So while wow. you guys were talking about handicapping, I picked it up with a thing and I threw it out there. But it was huge. I was like, holy mackerel, you know? Thank God those things aren't 10 foot tall. <laughs> we would be the second. We, would, we, we, we wouldn't last very long. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, and I wouldn't want to meet a female either, you know? Um, and those of you who don't understand that, just Google Prey Mantis, okay? <laughs> yes, it, it doesn't end pretty in the end. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Not for the males. Not at all. You know, we get our time and then that's it. You know, guillotine time. But, um, but I, I, you know, so when it comes to track conditions, I used to even, I even look, I used to look at Churchill guys when you had turf race and then dirt race and you'd have an hour between, between those races. And all of a sudden you would have, you know, horses flying on the lead and never looking back because it was a really, really uh, dry track. Um, and, and I used to play that at Santa Anita too, when the Santa Ana wins, Santa Ana wins would kick up and it would drive the track out between two turf races. And you would be amazed how quicker that track got for that one race sandwiched between two turf races. You know, you could have $25,000 claimers going nine and two. And then the next race after in the next couple of races later on in that day, you got stake horses going one ten. Well, you knew that that track that with the $25,000 horses was really souped up because of the no water for an hour and a half or the, not enough water for over an hour. So track condition is very important. And, 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 and sometimes, like you both of you, we all agree, biases are usually overrated. And biases are really um, – um, people are judgmental with biases because they're not take, they're looking at a horse they like that stops in the lane and say, well, he stopped because of the bias. People don't look in the mirror and say, maybe I just suck, you know? And, and that's what, how biases are created, right or wrong. Oh, absolutely. Good horses overcome, you know, bad situations, right? I mean, if you're the best horse in a race, you should win the race. And if he doesn't, people want to make excuses. A lot of handicappers can't look in the mirror. You two have been very successful. My guess, both of you look in the mirror when you make a bad selection. Oh, yeah. Roger, I'll go with you first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Michael? Yeah, but, you, I, I, you know, obviously you make a mistake, you make a bad pick, but then you got to move on, you know? Like, I feel like you can't, you know. You can't put yourself learn. in the penalty box, right? No. Yeah, but you can't, you know, you can't change your thinking because it didn't work out, you know? Like, you have this part of, you know, it's like a golfer. You're going to hit a bad shot once in a while and you move on and, you know, you look at it and you say, well, what could I have done differently here? It was, you know, just a bad read or whatever. And you move on. You know, like, what are you going to do? You have bad. I'll give you a great example. Uh, there was a day. Uh, I think it was the week before the Travers. I had a horrible Saturday. I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. The next day, seven winners on top. I've learned that. That. The one day isn't going to define me and the one bad day isn't going to define me and the one good day isn't going to define me. And I think the good handicappers can do that. The bad handicappers, and there's a lot of them, don't have mirrors in their house. And they definitely do not look in a mirror, you know, 
And I think that's what makes them bad handicappers. So if you're at home listening and you don't have a mirror in the house that you can look into and say, I sunk today, I'll be better tomorrow. But you want to blame biases, you want to blame the track, you want to blame the cheaters, you want to blame this, blame that, then you're a bad handicapper. There's no if it buts about it, you're bad. You need to figure out how to turn that around. Now, you two guys have had a lot of success playing tournaments. I'm going to start with Michael. Michael, what is your favorite tournament to play? You know, I, I, I do these, these the horse tourneys on the weekends. They're just a good live money tournaments and the pick and praise. And I, I like the NHC tournament. I like the Keeneland tournament. I mean, all these tournaments are awesome. <laughs> There's not that many I don't like. <laughs> How many do you play a week? You know, I I try to I'm I'm busy, so I you know like Roger said earlier, you kind of have to pick your poison. You know, your weekend warrior. You know, I try to pick my spots, and if I have time to study, that's important. You know, like if you don't have the time and you're rushing through it, you know, you just kind of burn. I feel like you're burning the money. So I, I try to put myself in situations when I have time to study, and, and you know what? If I'm gonna put the work in, it might as well be for money. You know, you know like. To, to do the work for something small now isn't worth it. So I try to do these live events on Fridays at horse tourneys and Saturdays. And then I try to look for these bigger events. You know, I, I like the NHC. Keeneland is incredible. If you guys know Jim Goodman, he, he does such a great job at that tournament every year in the spring and the fall. He treats the handicappers like gold. And uh, I just love going there. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not touting him, but he, he just does a great job. I've had, a, had an awesome experience there. It's a great place to go. And those types of tournaments I like. They're, you're all in for the weekend. You're spending your time. You know, I'm not distracted. You know, you, you're there and you're, you're, to me, that's the key to it, putting the time in and being all in as opposed to being half in and you're busy with family and whatnot. Well, let me just say this, that if you're not going to tout Jim Goodman, I'm going to tout Jim Goodman. Uh, he's great for the game. Uh, he's at Jim Goodman on uh, on uh, on Twitter. Uh, he is right there when you go to Keeneland. If you need anything, you get a hold of him for the tournaments. Uh, and uh, he's uh, bends over backward. Now, now that we're you know that we've officially touted Jim Goodman, <laughs> Roger, tell us a little bit about your uh, tournament experience. What is your favorite tournament to play in? So I will, I will agree on Jim Goodman. He's a great guy, by the way. So uh, three for three, I mean, three for three, obviously the NHC I love, but anything you do good at, you're going to love, right? I mean, isn't that how it works? So uh, I've gotten better at the live money contest. I think the only good thing that COVID did was made some of these, you were able to play remote, right? Like I played in the Pacific classic day at Del Mar and I wanted to finish in third. Now I never would have got that opportunity unless I would have went to Del Mar. So, right. uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I like playing in all of them. I do play the horse Tony's ones, uh, try to get breeders cup seats, you know, try to get, uh, you can get feeders and you can play into, try to get entries into Keeneland's contest, which is October 16th. So I just love them all and have for a long time. Now, Roger, you, um, let me see if I can put this correctly. You have had excellent success at the NHC. Tell people a little bit about your success that you've had there. So the, I got to get the dates right. So 
I finished second twice. The first time was 2013, and it was uh, it was a unique format that format that year, where they actually they actually had uh, it was only two days. There was no third day, no final table, nothing like that. And uh, they actually had one bet that you could have over two days, which was like your best bet, which was instead of two winning plays, was four winning plays. So I, I handicapped both days ahead of time. And I absolutely love this horse at Gulfstream. Uh, who is, it was a maiden special on the grass, and he was stepping up for maiden 50. And he went off 35 to 1, and he won. Ran unbelievable. So here I am. I'm on top, and it's a race goes off at fairgrounds, and then the last race was right up against it. It's pouring rain at Santa Anita. And I'm not looking at the leaderboard, and I'm only up by a dollar forty. It was just like everything happened at once. So I bet a horse that ran bad, and the guy who eventually won bet the favorite, who didn't win but ran second because another horse oh. blew the turn and beat oh. me by a dollar forty. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, um, that's a horrible, horrible beat. Yeah, that was. It was horrible. Oh. It, it, was, it was brutal. And then in 2016, I finished second uh, between uh, Matisse brothers, between uh, Paul actually won, and, and between Paul and Duke. And, and it's funny, you know, we talk about the, the late odds, right? I, I think in those three days, I think I got put up twice and got left up like once or twice. But I remember the final table, I bet a horse that ran good for Maiden 25 at Gulfstream on the grass. Then he ran the Maiden special break, and he just, he just got his ass kicked. And here he is back at Maiden 25. And I still go back and watch the replay. To this day, he's 19 to 1 walking in the gate. And right before the gate springs, the horse goes down to 11 to 1. Ugh. And he winds up running second. He gets put up because somebody else DQ'd, got DQ'd. And I lost the whole contest by $10. Oh. Wow. You know what? You have been a hard luck loser in two of them. You're due. You're yeah, due. Maybe it's genuine. Yeah. But it was still great. Like, I have no regrets. You know, like, the first one hurt even more because I didn't realize I was only up by that little. But you, can, I, can I tell you something, though? Looking at it and hearing about it, yeah, it's a bad beat. But you play tremendous to get there. Yeah. Don't ever forget that, you know. No, definitely, you know, not. you know. Don't ever forget that. And, and the, Michael, the, how about the fact you? that he came back and did it again tells you he obviously knows what he's doing. It wasn't a fluke, too. I mean, right, that's right, pretty right. sick. Yeah, pretty sick. Nobody can ever say that those two winners beat nobody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pretty sick. Yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, how about your stories with the uh, with the tournaments? And what would you, uh, Michael, let me ask you, what would you recommend to a new tournament player that's listening on how to go about it and become successful in tournaments? You know, it's, uh, I mean, Raj is probably better to talk to. I think he's probably won more than me. But, you know, I, I feel like you have to stick to your guns. You have to have a plan. You know, it's stuff that we've talked about. And, you know, I, I, I do feel like the NHC is a, just a special thing. Everything has to go your way. You have to be thinking a little differently. And, uh, I mean, to get beat, like Roger got beat is just, you know, 
I mean, that's just that's that's tough beat right there. I mean, he's he's right there for winning the whole thing. But I I, I would say you got to prepare and, and you have to obviously do tournaments to practice. You know, Pete said something great the last time you had him on, uh, Bruno. He said when you handicap Hong Kong for a couple of days, it sets you up for these other places because it's easier. And I do think a little bit like that. I think. You know, you have to like season yourself by playing in these tough tournaments and sometimes getting your ass kicked, but you have to do it. You know, like you're not going to just show up and play one big tournament and expect to win. You have to kind of do a bunch of them and you, you kind of get seasoned and you get your ass kicked and you figure it out. You know, like, you know, I've been close in a few and I, you know, make the wrong pick in the last race all the time. I'm trying to get better, but I, I, I it's, you know, it's, it's a hard game. It's, it's, I think Roger will attest to that. You, you lose more than you win, but when you do win, the wins are big, and it kind of makes up for it. I always say, Roger, that if everything was um, – if we won all the time, it wouldn't be any fun. <laughs> I'd like to try it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, we can do it for a little while. I mean, yeah, becomes, exactly. Then, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was days where – uh, I used to play in a, in, in a, in a tournament that was sponsored by uh, the Barbary Coast and uh, the late Muggsy Muniz at Del Mar for about four or five years. I won. I had the, uh, I had the pleasure of winning it twice. It was a month long. It was a meat long uh, 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 contest with about seven to, to nine uh, highly uh, respected handicappers. Like at that time was Gordon Jones and Tom Brohammer and James Quinn and, uh, a lot of good, good handicappers, good players. And I, and I remember going through those whole meets and you'd have to put five, you had to pick five horses a day and they would bet 21 in place on them for you. And, and the guy at the end of the meet with, uh, the most money would, would win. Um, and the first year I ended up winning it. Um, and the, 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 the interesting part is that the first two weeks, I felt like I was in the middle of, of rush hour traffic on the freeway. At, uh, well, actually, no, I just on the freeway in, in California with everybody just flying by and I was walking. And then all of a sudden when you get hot, you just fly by people. And, and you, you know, I remember with three days to go, guys, I was $684 down behind Tom Brohammer. And that I ended up beating them by five hundred dollars. Wow. I mean, it was unbelievable. And when you got into that me- mental frame, it just seemed to like it just flowed. You know, it's like that that baseball looked like like a beach ball, and then when you were not hot, that baseball looked like a ping pong ball. Um, and and it's true to this day. And how do you guys handle? We all can be streaky. How do you guys handle trying to remain consistent? You know, we all love those winning streaks, right? But you can't be on that kind of winning streak all the time. How do you maintain your consistency and still expect to have those streaks? Roger, I'll go to you first. That's really tough to do. I'll have to say, like, the first six months of this year was just was not good. Not good at all until Delmar opened. Uh, I think the key, 
I think the key nowadays is not like it used to be, right? You can't look at a card and like have eight out of 10 races be like, well, this is a great card. I got to bet all these races. I think you really have to shop around more now than ever before, which, which is a little tougher to do. You know, when you just play in the weekends, it's like Saturday, you're like raring to go. Like, you know, you gotta, you gotta strap yourself to the chair for lack of a better term. It's uh, it's really difficult to stay consistent. You fight it all the time. I'm sure Michael has the same same issue, but it just it, 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 the the quality of racing just isn't what it used to be. Roger, let me opinion. ask you a question. You brought yeah. up about your first six months were really tough. Without getting into details, was there something going on in your life at the time that took a lot of your time? Work work always takes a lot of the time. Yeah, work gets in the way of playing all the work, time. Work, work gets in the way of playing. But no, nothing more than normal, no. Definitely not. Um, Michael, how do you handle the pressure of staying consistent? You know, I think you have to have a faith in what you're doing and your process. And it helps that you, know, that you have had success and you understand and you appreciate it. You know, I've learned I'm a little more humble now when things go well. And when things go really well, I'm also looking over my shoulder, knowing that, you know, eventually that's going to end. So I, I try to appreciate the streaks. And I, I find, you know, I think when you're confident, you said it, the baseball gets big. And we've talked about this. There are times that I, I'm rolling and I just look at it and I just, you know, I'm picking the winner halfway down the, the page without even looking at the horse. I could just see it, you know, where you're just confident. And I think jockeys get that. I think confidence is something that comes and goes. And learning to keep that confidence, and, and even when things are dark, you know, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to be confident when you're losing and you go 0 for 10, 0 for 12. But talk to a pro baseball player who hasn't had a hit in four nights. He still has to get up and swing the bat and be loose. So I feel like handicapping is similar. you got to stay loose. You have to believe in yourself, believe in the process. And, you know, it's part of the game. You're going to lose. And the more I lose, the more I get closer to winning is kind of the way I think about it. Like, you know, especially if you're close and, you know, you're close to a few scores. And you just have to just stay the course is what I try to do for myself. You know, it, it, interesting when you mentioned about confidence. You know, you guys have both come onto our Zooms that we do on the free ones that we do early in the week. And then we have the gold members. And I have really worked hard to make those players, the gold man, anybody that comes to our Zooms, to in, infuse confidence. The confidence to pass the race, the confidence to play the race. Give person the tools to think, to, to mentally approach the game. Why is Tom Brady such a phenomenal performer? If he keeps his cool in any situation, um, and he knows how to, and, and that coolness about him, his ability to not have his heart rate go over a certain level, allows him to also bring everything else surrounding down and 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 focus. Uh, just watching him play can tell you that big time quarterbacks, big time pitchers like Randy Johnson or 
the Tom Seavers of the world, uh, uh, over the years, the, the, the Greg Maddox, the Tom Glavin. They, uh, you look their face, that face never changed, whether they were getting shelled or they were throwing a no-hitter. Never changed. Goalies, you're a hockey guy, Michael. Patrick Waugh was one of the, the, the guys that had this confidence about him. I remember in 1993, in 1994 versus the, no, 1993 versus the Kings, where the Canadians played the Kings, he stopped Thomas Sandstrom cold on a key stop in, in an overtime game. And he reached, and, and, and you could see, and, and the, they captured him winking at Thomas Sandstrom after he made the save. You know, that kind of confidence, you know, handicappers need that confidence to be able to move on. Like I told you, I think it was uh, the 15th, I think it was the 15th or something like that of August. I had a horrible Saturday. Horrible. But the next day, it was like brand new day. You know, a lot of young handicappers want to change things up. They, 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 they get angry. They attack trainers for being cheaters and this and that. Um, that's not the way to win, is it, guys? Is it, Roger? No, definitely not. I've never heard you guys ever say anything bad about if you lost, you, you, you know, you looked in the mirror, you blamed yourself on to the next day. Yep. That's the only way you can be. Now, both of you are partners with me on horses and have your own horses. Uh, Roger, how does that, how does your handicapping coming into owning horses? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. I'm really not sure how to answer that. Like, uh, I, I never bet my own horses. That's one thing I never do because they never seem to win when I do call it superstition. Well, we need to change that. Yeah. I've made, I've made, I, I've made some monster scores on my horses in the past. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, and I, you know, and it just works that way. But when Concrete Charlie won in the mud and went off at 22 to one, I didn't have a penny on him because we didn't think he could stand up in it. So there, there you go. Uh, Michael, how about you? You know, I haven't had success betting on any of the horses I've been partners in. And, you know, I feel like, Someone once told me you'll go broke betting on your own horses. <laughs> not, 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 not true. Not I said, true. all right. <laughs> not true. Not true. I, uh, I've had a lot of success with that, and hopefully we can change that. We better yes. change that. Well, yeah. I think you have to be disciplined. You know, you have to be disciplined and patient, and you can't play them all. But every time they run, you can't bet them like they're going to win, you know? No, no, that's right. And sometimes they surprise you, you know, they, they, they do things that you go, wait a minute, I wasn't expecting that, you know? So, but, um, but guys, I really enjoyed this. This has been a treat for me to sit back and hear you guys talk about handicapping. Uh, one final conversation I wanted to have now the Breeders' Cup, uh, at Del Mar, uh, are both of you going to attend Del Mar? And if you are, um, hopefully we can uh, get together and we can do some sound bites for a podcast. Uh, but also, what are your expectations in the next month heading into the Breeders' Cup? And I'll start off with Michael. You know, I, I'm just starting to really think about it. I have two seats for the Breeders' Cup this year at Del Mar. 
and I'm starting to think about the horses that are going to be running and trying to take some notes. I I would love to go there if I could figure it out. It's tough with the family and hockey season. So I don't know if I'm going to be out there, but I'm, you know, it's, I'd like to do well in that tournament. You know, I feel like I've, you know, had a couple of chances now and I haven't been that focused and, I, and I'd like to really go and, and have a great run and make some money at the very least you keep the money you make, you know, and 10 grand is a lot to play with. So, you know, but I, I start looking at these races now, who I think's real, who's, who I think's not going to, you know, really be great over there. But, and that's the way I start looking at it. You know, I'm starting to start to prepare for the bigger days. I had a conversation today with Brendan Walsh. He's running um, Maxfield over at um, Belmont uh, next week. He was work. He was going to New York tomorrow uh, for uh, to uh, to watch him work, and then he runs next week. Um, and I, I mentioned to him that depending on the track he gets at Del Mar, uh, Maxfield could be a very interesting horse, and. A lot of people already have looked at, you've got Nick Sco, you got Essential Quality, you got Speed. They forget the Delmar factor. And they forget the Delmar factor that sometimes that track will play right into Maxfield's hands. And other times it might play right into Nick Sco's hands. It's not something that is constant over there. And he thought it was really an interesting way of looking at things, you know, you know, the way that the track is going to play. And that's going to be a, a, a really a game time call because you're not, we're not going to really know how that track is going to play and how the tides are going to affect that track. Uh, and people, and, and again, we talk about this a lot on, on, on this podcast and that track is built on a riverbed and it's got water underneath it. They're basically the bottom line when the high tide is out, all the water, all the places around Del Mar are filled with water. Um, you know, so obviously it has an effect. So that's something that you're going to have to keep track of if you actually are serious about playing Del Mar. Michael? Well, that's where you come in, Bruno. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. Your notes, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. the pressure on me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so well, I'll, Bruno I'll, told yes. me. I'll throw what you. He I'll, said. I'll, <laughs> I'm pushing you headfirst in front of the bus, but no, you'll you'll come out in your notes and you'll say, "Hey, the tides are up or the tides are down," and you know you'll kind of give us a heads up on how the track was playing. I will. I, I, I to all the client. Last time we did at Delmar, I wrote to every single client I'd ever had and wrote about how the track was going to play. And I had some people, you know, kind of, you know, snicker at me. You know, oh, you're doing voodoo handicapping. <laughs> well, I guess they found out real quick, you know, yeah, when they started. Yeah. You know, um, now, Roger, um, same question for you. Are you looking at the Breeders' Cup already? No, not yet. Probably about a month before. Well, we're getting there. Yeah, we're getting you know, there. We're getting seven, there. Yeah, I'll be heading out uh, seven weeks from tomorrow, actually. Oh, so you will be there? Oh yes, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. We need we need to get we need to get uh, some NHL guy to take over for for Michael over there and uh, and ship him out in the Zamboni. Just show yeah. up. Just drive the Zamboni over, Mike. 
You Let's know? put it this way. We're working on it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great to get everybody together. Um, before we go, real quick, I want to go to each one of you. One tip on how to make yourself a better handicapper if you're just starting out. If you're a rookie and you're listening, what is Michael, what is the one tip you can give that rookie horse player uh, uh, idea? Um Let's say in hockey style, what would you tell a rookie and uh, a rookie hockey player on what to do to get to get to where he can be confident in his game? You know, what I would say the when you look at a horse's figures and you look at that last race and that last race, the figure jumped big. I think you have to take that for what it is. And don't expect that figure to be the next figure. In other words, you're saying you don't believe the figure. You think the horse is the same kind of horse and don't get yeah. too high on it. Or yeah, or maybe he had a great day. And if you look at the history of his races, and you'll see that he's had those days in the past. But very rarely do, you know, the, the great horses put them back to back in the back, right? Like they run them all the time. But as you get into these lower class horses... They don't run the same numbers. And they and don't hold their like, form, right. That's right. And people get stuck on that. Oh, but look at his last race. It was huge. And they, they, you know, they take that number as this is it. And I feel like those are the horses I try to beat, especially if that's a number that's, you know, not his normal figure and that's above what he normally runs. So I think that would be my, you know, look deeper than the last race and the last big figure. Is, is what my tip would be. Now, before we go to our closer, our Mariano Rivera, Roger, I'll throw in my tip. If it looks too good to be true, it usually is. <laughs> and what I mean by that, if you're some people and, and handicappers seem as a whole have favorite horses and those horses always get bet no matter what they did last time out. They find a reason to like them. Learn who those horses are and stay off of them. And if you like a horse that you think nobody else has and everybody's talking about it, it's time to hit the parachute button. Let's call. Let's make the call to the bullpen. Roger, end this. What about you? So my advice would be is that, first of all, you need to start slow. And you need to be a sponge. You got to absorb it all. You got to get yourself a notebook and you've got to, you got to handicap and you got to take notes and you got to really look at what you're doing and watch replays and try to get the hang of it. Cause it doesn't come that easy. I've been doing it for 35, 36 years. It doesn't happen overnight. I think the problem is a lot of people want to jump in and like, you know, everyone will tell you the story. The first time they went to the track, they won big, right? It happened to me. <laughs> uh, you got to put the time in, right? If it's something you really want to do, you have to put the time in. You need to be a sponge. You got to take it all in. Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com.